to Isaiah chapter 24. This evening we'll look to, uh, in our journey through the scriptures, to study chapters uh, 22 through 25 tonight. Uh, On Sunday mornings we're looking at a little something that maybe the Lord's directed my heart to. If you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And uh, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Isaiah chapter 24, we pick things up in verse 4. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant, and therefore the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. The new wine fails, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the jubilant ends, the joy of the harp ceases, They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may go in. There's a cry for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord. For the amazing beauty and depth and diversity and wisdom and truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you in the study of it. We ask for your Holy Spirit to freshly fill us, Lord. That your voice would be loud and clear to us. That we would commune deeply and personally as we study these passages that are going to outlive the heavens and the earth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In Isaiah chapters 13 through 23, the prophet Isaiah declares a series of woes upon the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, and upon several of the nations that surrounded them in that part of the world. And these prophecies, warning of God's judgment to come upon them, were pronounced as a result of their open sin and their open wickedness and rebellion against God. And then in chapter 24, as we're studying here this morning, Isaiah moves from this series of prophecies against individual nations to a prophecy of judgment that will come upon the entire earth. And this judgment that he speaks of here is yet future. It is most fully described in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19. It's a judgment that is known as the Great Tribulation. And this Great Tribulation will be a time when God's judgment will be poured out upon the earth in a series of seven seals, seven trumpet, and seven bold judgments. And that judgment will be poured out against the rebellion of man, against God's word and his will, against man's sin and against uh, man's wickedness. And chief among those sins that God judges is the sin that is the core of all sin, the core of all wickedness and all rebellion against God. And it is the sin of rejecting His Son, Jesus. And the salvation and the forgiveness that is found uniquely in Him. All other sins in a human being's life are simply symptom sins of this greatest of all sins. Because when a person puts their faith in Christ, 
for the forgiveness of their sins. They will also then repent of their sin and become one of his disciples, a follower of Jesus, obedient as a result to his teaching and to his example. And when a person becomes obedient to the teaching and the example of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, then sin and wickedness and rebellion against God all melt away as a result. Our life now becomes characterized by obedience to God and holy living and Christ-like living. The Bible teaches that the church, that refers to Christians worldwide, we all make up one church, that the church will be removed from the world and taken into heaven immediately prior to this seven-year period of tribulation and judgment that's to come upon the earth. When God pours his wrath out against man's sin and rebellion, and this removal of the church is a wonderful event that is referred to as the rapture. The Bible teaches that we are, as Christians, not appointed to wrath, the wrath of God that all of our sin deserves. Jesus bore that wrath upon the cross for us. Paul wrote concerning the fact that we are not appointed to wrath in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He said, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He drives home the same point, the same comfort and reassurance in the first chapter of that same book. He said, For from you to you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything, for they themselves declare concerning what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and the living God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And the rapture of the worldwide church into heaven will not only mean the removal of every Christian from the world, but also all of their salt, all of their light, all of their good works, all of their love, all of their kindness, all of their influence for good, all of their influence for God. But it will also mean the removal of the full influence of the Holy Spirit in the world through them. Paul wrote about that in his second letter to the church at Thessalonica. And he wrote there, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And then notice he says, But he, that is the Holy Spirit, who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Increasingly, the world that we live in is communicating in a thousand different ways on virtually a daily basis that they want nothing to do with Christianity or with the Bible or with Christians or the God of the Bible the definitions of right and wrong that are found in the book. And in some cases, they are wishing that they could be rid of us altogether, that if we could only be rid of these Christians and their archaic thinking and belief in the Bible and that old archaic standards and definitions of right and wrong, we could move into the next, take the next leap in our uh, evolutionary process. One day the Bible teaches that they'll get their wish to be rid of us But it's not going to usher in a great season of true freedom and enlightenment or prosperity, but instead it will produce a literal hell on earth. And Isaiah prophesies here concerning what the world will become at that time in verses 4 and 5. He said the earth will mourn. And the idea is that it will, uh, the word mourn has, in the Hebrew has this idea that it will walk with its head cast down. And, and the idea is that it will lose all hope and all vitality. 
Verse 4 again, it will fade away. And that word fade, it means to fade, it means to wither, it means to decay. Kind of like a flower in a vase where you buy it in the store, it hasn't opened up yet, and you're waiting for it to open up. It opens up and you get those two or three days where it is just perfection there on the dining room table or wherever you might put it in in your house and then all of a sudden it begins to fade it moves beyond that its peak begins to fade and wither up and it's one thing for a flower to do that but imagine the whole world on every level now beginning to fade and beginning to decay and beginning uh, to wither how depressing how miserable to live in a world like that he says further in verse 4 that it will languish as will uh, uh, as the will uh, as will the people who are in the world and this word languish it means to droop it means to become sluggish lifeless again is they're going to lack a life and a vitality as a result during this period of time He said in verse 5, the whole world will become defiled. And the word defiled means profane, polluted, perverted. And so living in a world that it will result in a world that is absolutely devoid of holiness, of salt, of light. It will become completely godless. Imagine how defiled this world uh, will become and how individual lives will become without the influence of God's word in this world, without the influence of the body of Christ in this world for good and for God, as I've said, without the full and necessary influence of the Holy Spirit to restrain the uh, push toward wickedness and toward evil. Notice in verse 5 that word because that is listed there. And here the, uh, Isaiah gives us uh, the plain reason for why all of this will occur. Because they have transgressed the laws. And speaking of the law of God, because they have changed the ordinance. Because they have broken the everlasting covenant. Now there's an awful lot bound up in those three uh, phrases that we could unpack. But I don't have time to do that this morning. Essentially, he is telling us that this is going to come upon the earth because they've rejected God's commandments, his laws, his wisdom, rejected even the voice of conscience that is uh, within them. And so willing to sin against everything, against God's word, willing to sin against his covenants, and even to sin against the voice of his Holy Spirit and the voice of conscience. We're going to do what we want and let all of that be damned. We're going to move forward uh, without any of those voices. Now, it's never wise to transgress a law. How many of you know that? <laughs> you get a ticket that way. But is it, problems are even deeper than that. It's never wise to transgress a law. And it certainly isn't wise to transgress a law without first discovering what danger that law is intended to protect me from. Before we, I, I remember hearing years ago somebody said, before we tear down the walls that were erected by our forefathers within our culture, don't you think we ought to take a moment, just a moment, to ask ourselves why they built those walls to begin with? What demonic horde, what human horde, what horde of evil and wickedness did they encounter that required them, made them feel as if they were required to build this physical wall or this wall of laws in order to protect the people from some kind of danger? What is it protecting us from? A good question to ask before we tear a wall down. How much more foolish is it then to transgress God's law 
and to do so with the casualness of our age, to tear down God's commandments, his ordinances, his laws, without asking any questions, with no honest or open discussion or debate about the possibility that God's laws could actually be superior to anything that we could think of in our wisdom, that his laws might be given to us in order to actually protect us from something that we don't understand that it is protecting us from, something demonic, something human, something terrible, something dark that will then become our portion, that God never intended to become our portion if we had not torn down his walls and taken and transgressed his law. I think about how casually we tear down God's walls today and then replace it with something of our own intellect or something of our own immorality today. How without a national debate, with hardly the blink of an eye, we redefine away from God. It's a folly that's going on in our own nation today. We redefine away from God when life begins in the womb. The definition of marriage, the definition of a family, the definition of sexual morality and immorality, the definitions of right and wrong and good and bad. And we do so virtually oblivious to the fact that all of those walls were put up by God for a reason. And to tear them down will make a world vulnerable to a demonic force and horde that they don't even believe exists and will produce an unimaginable spiritual and physical and mental and emotional damage and repercussions. As the old saying goes, sin is not bad because it's forbidden by God. It is forbidden by God because it's bad. And that great truth is lost not only in large part upon our nation, but upon the world that we live in. And there's a therefore to all of this, and that's why it's the first word of verse 6. And an encapsulation of verse 6 is basically that God must, as a result, and will judge the earth. But it's important to realize, as the chapter concludes in verse 23, that the purpose of his judgment is never simply to judge, but that the judgment is necessary in order for him to bring forth the beautiful thing that he desires and that he intends. And what he desires and intends is there in verse 23, Jesus one day reigning over a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And all that stands in the way of that wonderful reality and the future history of mankind must be judged and must be put away. But I want you to notice in verses 7 through 11 that one of the first casualties of sin and of self-will and of rebellion against God is joy. We are told in verse 7 that all of the merry-hearted sigh, even those who are by temperament and by natural disposition because of the sin that will dominate the world they will lose their joy the mirth of the tambourine ceases Isaiah says the noise of the jubilant ends the joy of the heart harp ceases he declares in verse 8 in other words where sin begins to dominate the first casualty of sin is joy and sin robs the artist of joy it robs him or her of all virtuous emotion including joy that has to be at the core of the musician who desires to produce true mirth and jubilation and joy in the hearts of others through their music. Why, for example, are the movies and the foreign films that generally come out of post-Christian continental Europe so bleak, 
Why are they so dark? Why are they so joyless, so given to the exploration and of what is emotionally dark, the exploration of sin? And I would contend that it's because it is so post-Christian. And the whole world is going to become post-Christian one day at the rapture of the church. And I would contend that we might consider that sin has robbed her of joy and of other virtuous emotions, leaving this vast section of our world unfamiliar with joy, inexperienced in joy, not knowing it experientially. The artist can't express it convincingly. So they leave off the exploration of what is noble, of the themes of hope and of joy and of promise. And they're left with only the dark emotions in the human heart, the darkest expressions of the human heart to explore in terms of their art. And it's not only true of her films, it's true of her music and of life itself in continental Europe, in my opinion. And I can only give my impressions of it, but some of you might have noticed it as well. As a spirit-filled Christian who's traveled for a variety of reasons to Europe many, many times, is it beautiful? Oh, it is beautiful beyond description. The natural beauty of the Alps, the natural beauty of the forests and the farmland, the villages, the beauty not only of what God has created, but the beauty of the buildings and the cities and the architecture. Absolutely beautiful. But comparatively speaking, in my opinion, there is no joy. There is no soul. I remember the first time I traveled to Europe, one of the first times we spent 21 days there traveling I forget how many thousands of miles to the north, the south, the east, and the west. And for all of its beauty, as I looked at the people, as I felt the spiritual atmosphere of the land, I thought to myself, it has no soul. There's no soul here. And I used to chalk it up to the greater sophistication of Europeans as opposed to Americans that they possess this restraint, they possess this reserve in showing emotion, especially uh, deep joy or mirth or jubilation, that they, they restrain themselves from expressing joy and jubilation and mirth as a choice that they were making. But now I wonder if it isn't because sin has robbed them Virtually an entire continent of its joy. And now when I'm there, I can hardly await what so many people despised. And I looked down on this American for some period of time. Now I find myself longing for it. I can't wait for some group of joy-filled Americans to come on the subway and to introduce some kind of life with their laughing and their loud voices and this demonstration of joy that is otherwise completely absent in my, absent in my experience. I can't wait for them to come into the restaurant and to introduce a joy that was another, otherwise going to ever come into that Restaurant to bring in all of their jubilation because though the United States of America is clearly post-Christian, we are more recently so than Europe. That we still enjoy some of the benefits of our Christian heritage. There's still a fight for the soul of the nation. There's still the expression of joy in a significant part of our population. And I'm not picking on Europe alone. For those of you who've traveled to other parts of the world, couldn't we make the same case concerning the absence of joy in Muslim society? 
in Hindu society or in any nation of the world that is completely secular and now dominated by systemic violence and corruption? And what is the unifying force behind all of these things? All of it is expressed, whether religious or secular, in violation of God's commandments in His Word. And you look at the world and you say, where is the joy? And you see that joy even in our own land is beginning to disappear at an alarming rate. And we ask ourselves, why this disappearance of joy? It is because it is always the casualty of sin. And what is true of nations and societies and cultures is also true of individual human beings. You examine a sin-filled life and examine it for joy and see if joy hasn't become a casualty of their sin. And I don't mean just looking at a person's life for an hour or two or three at a dinner party or at some kind of a night on the town, but look at them when they're alone. Look at them before they go to sleep. Study their life when they wake up the first thing in the morning. And speak then about the absence or the presence of true, deep, abiding joy in that person's life. In verse 11, the language is so strong. It's so beautiful in this weird kind of way as Isaiah is trying to describe what happens when sin becomes the norm in a world and in an individual life. He said, all joy is darkened, verse 11. The language is poetic, and the word darkened speaks of a sun setting. In other words, sin starts the sun setting on this thing called joy until ultimately, unless it's turned back, that is joy is altogether gone. And he says as much in the final words of verse 11. The mirth of the land is gone. And sin is the death of joy and mirth and jubilation and a merry heart. And Isaiah declares it in the passage. Because it always puts me at odds with God and at odds with my fellow man and with all of creation. And it even puts me at odds with myself as God has intended me to live. Sin is always expressed at the expense of at least one of these, all, and all of them even at the same time. So how can there be joy when it is only found in knowing God and obeying God? Because only in knowing God and obeying God does that put me in right relationship, not only with him, but my fellow man, and then with all of creation itself, and even with myself. And as Christians, we are the sole possessors of true Holy Spirit birth joy in this world. And if it goes out in our lives, then it goes out for the whole world. And on the night before Jesus was crucified, as he spent that evening with his disciples in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem, he concluded that very, very eventful and emotional evening with his disciples by praying for them. And the prayer is recorded in John chapter 17. And part of what he prayed to God the Father for the disciples was this. He said to the Father, but now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world. And then here it is. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It is fascinating to me in studying that prayer of what a high priority Jesus placed upon joy in the life of his disciples. When I read that prayer, I notice that he prayed for their purity. I would expect that. Check. He prayed for their protection, just as we would expect. 
check again. He prayed for their unity. Again, just as we would expect, check. But then when he prays for their joy, you can think to yourself, what? These other things are really important, we can sometimes think. But isn't joy like an optional thing in the Christian life? Isn't it really just kind of a no big deal whether it characterizes our lives or not? Not when we realize that true joy is either going to be expressed and seen on planet earth through Christians or it will disappear altogether. And God knows and is conscious of what we so often lose sight of, even as his children, even as Christians. And it fascinates me that Jesus does not want to be known by joyless followers, nor does he want to be known in the eyes of the world as the leader and the head of some joyless religion. And it fascinates me further that he spoke of his joy being fulfilled in us. And I don't know how many of us, even as Christians, when we think of Jesus and the course of his earthly ministry, what characterizes and marks his life as he sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father, whether when we think of him, whether the word joy immediately comes to our minds. But for all of the hardship and opposition that Jesus faced, all of the responsibility that he bore, he never ceased to be marked by joy. And he wants that for each and every one of us. And he knows what we face in this world as Christians, but he never wants it to cost us our joy, the joy of our salvation. The joy of our sins forgiven, the joy of knowing God, the joy of being a part of his family, the joy of being in a personal relationship with the joy of knowing that he loves me, the joy of being a new creation by virtue of a miracle of the Holy Spirit, the joy of the privilege of being able to live this Christian life, the confidence of heaven, the joy of being filled and directed by the Holy Spirit, and on and on and on we could go. Even the Apostle Paul, when we think about his life and his ministry, we can think of him almost solely in terms of this dogged determination, this uh, this uh, sober-mindedness, seriousness that marked his life. But the fact of the matter is he was all of that, but he never lost his joy. He wrote at the end of his life as he spoke to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, and he spoke of the difficulties in his life, great difficulties in his life, and he said, but none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. I remember a number of years ago when Karen and I were leading a group from the church on one of our trips to Israel. And the president of the travel company that we used, he came to the hotel that we were staying in a Jerusalem when we arrived. And he met us there. And he was and he is a Christian, a Messianic Jew. And he welcomed us and he asked us whether they asked the entire group there were, whether they had any questions that they might have now that they've come to the city of, of Jerusalem. And someone asked him if there was something specific that we could do as Christians to be a witness to the Jewish people concerning Jesus. And I don't know if the person was expecting my friend to give us some kind of a foolproof scriptural plan for how to witness to the Jews from Isaiah 53 or from Psalm 22 or Psalm 110. All of those things, of course, are wonderful and terrific in their own way. But my friend said to the group, he said, just go out and live 
the Christian life before them. Let them watch you pray. Let them hear you pray. Let them watch you sing and worship God. Let them hear you sing and worship God. Let them hear you laugh. Let them see your joy so that it might provoke them to jealousy, as Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 10. Let them see a relationship with God that they know nothing about, an intimacy with God that they know nothing about, a joy that comes out of that relationship with God that they know nothing about in their core. And let them see it as a witness of the reality and the joy of your relationship with God. And I thought it was a very profound thing to say. It's very easy to forget the power of joy in a joyless world as a witness to the fact that we follow a different king than the king that this world follows. And as a witness to the fact that we are a part of a different kingdom than the kingdom of this world. And sometimes we need to be reminded of the power of joy. And even as Christians, it's so easy to lose our joy and become dominated by the melancholy, the malaise, the depression of the world all around us. Possessing joy in a joyless world is one of the greatest advertisements for the reality of God and the reality of God in our lives that we possess. And in fact, that joy is a necessity for the child of God. As Nehemiah cried out to the children of God in the Old Testament, he said, Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The world around us is very quickly losing its joy for all the reasons that Isaiah declared would be the case the age in which he lived. And it is very important that we make sure as Christians that we do not lose our joy as well. They are losing their joy of necessity, esteeming sin more highly than joy but we can only lose our joy if we choose to joy is a uniquely Christian characteristic because true joy is to be like Christ as a Christian here this morning have you lost your joy along the way Have you let somebody rob you of it? Have the circumstances of life robbed you of your joy? Is the distressing condition of the world around you, the depression, the melancholy that rests upon the world in a way that it never has in my lifetime, robbed you of your joy? And joy can become a casualty of life in this fallen world. And it's for that reason that Jesus prayed to the Father that he would be directly involved in making sure that it doesn't happen in our lives. How do we get our joy back if we've lost it? By asking God to freshly fill us with his Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And in that list in the book of Galatians, the very next characteristic of a life that is dominated by the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit brings it into our life, is joy. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love and it is joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. And to ask God, would you freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit? I have allowed my joy to become the casualty of others or the casualty of the spiritual atmosphere of the world that I live in. But I realize today I don't need to allow that to happen. And God will freshly fill you with his Holy Spirit. He will resurrect that joy in your life. And then the importance of us as Christians to express our joy in this world. And to do it without shame and without embarrassment, but to do it openly. It's a gift from God. It's to be like Jesus. And it marks us as one of his disciples. And it's so important for us to determine by the grace of God not to become like the joyless zombies that this world is producing in convincing people to reject God and to reject His way. Like never before, I feel like, I don't know if you feel the same way, I feel like I'm living in a science fiction movie. And a whole group of zombies, I go to the mall and they're trudging through the mall, their arms full of all kinds of things that they're purchased. Absolutely joyless. Not only joyless, lifeless. And they're just making their way through in this season that ought to be all about joy. I go into a restaurant and here it is, one fork full of food into the mouth after the other. Never a smile, no prayer, prayer before the meal, no capacity to enjoy it in the way that a Christian is able to as a gift from God and done in fellowship with God. And there is the meal, it's eaten in silence or everybody's on their iPhone or whatever. And I look at myself and I feel if I dropped into the set of the Stepford Wives, where's the joy? Where's the life? It's gone because the nation and the world that we live in is heading headlong into the same scenario of Isaiah's day. We want our sin more than we want joy or we want our sin more than we want God. And they don't realize that the first casualty of it is joy. And you look at the joylessness of the life and the world that we live in. And then pretty soon we think that's the norm. That's how it ought to be. That we're goofy living the fullness of this Christian life and laughing in the mall and the restaurant and praising the Lord, hugging one another when we see each other, having a song in our heart that we're singing audibly as we're walking along. Not shouting it, but something from the Lord that's there. It is uniquely ours. As Christians, and if we lose it, as the world is losing it around us because of the choices that it's making, then joy will disappear from the human condition. So let's be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's recognize the value and the beauty of joy. And let's be quick to be fully Christian, even in the expression of joy in and through our lives. Let me close with what I hope in all of this is a great encouragement toward joy in our lives. But let me close with an exhortation to any of us here today who are Christians and in need of this exhortation. One of the first casualties of sin is joy. And let me just speak in the privacy of my heart to your heart in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Are you backslidden from the Lord here today? I don't say, can you put on the appearance before your husband, your wife, your family, this church? Intimacy and obedience with God. When in your heart you know you're backslidden. How much joy do you have? I'll tell you how much you have. None. None. You have your sin. You have your disobedience. 
You have your compromise. But you have paid a terrible price for it. In the absence of joy in your life. And you will never know that joy that was once a mark of your life until you are willing to recognize that sin that's been reintroduced by your invitation back into your life, that you are choosing above God, choosing above God's law and His ordinances, His covenants. But the beautiful thing here today is that maybe God, by His Holy Spirit, can break through to your heart and make you realize the horrible price that you're paying even in the narrow band and realm of just one fruit of the Holy Spirit, the area of joy. You can't make it without joy. Not in this world. You can't survive without joy. Not in this world. And you certainly can't live for Christ and make a difference for Him without joy. And so the importance today of confessing your sin to God, recognizing the folly of the decision, the trade that you have made, and turning back to God and asking for His forgiveness and to be freshly filled with the Holy Spirit. And God will meet with you in that place as you turn from your sin, and He will freshly fill you with your Holy Spirit and reintroduce this priceless Christian virtue called joy back into your life. If you sit here this morning and you're not a Christian, there's existence and there's life. And they're two entirely different things. And until you come to know Christ... Until you're engaged in a relationship with God that you've been created for, all the highest thing you will ever know in life is mere existence. But I tell you, there is life to be lived. Something way above existence that God offers to you. Jesus said, I am come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And it's all found in a relationship with God. You don't have to fall into line with the shuffling zombies of this world. There's something entirely different. You can break out of that, that kingdom, that domed city of some science fiction movie that's become our reality and into something that is rich and beautiful. And Jesus declares to you this morning concerning himself that God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's you again, would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that life doesn't begin when we die. It begins the moment we put our faith in Christ. And they're going to be men and women and pastors up in front immediately after our service. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God that you've been created for. And then in one nanosecond, move from existence into life. And it's all there for the asking and all there for the receiving. Allow me to close us in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of this passage and of this truth. How it takes the darkness of Isaiah chapter 24 to help us to appreciate the value of joy and the importance of it, Lord, its beauty. And thank you for this reminder. And I just want to ask as we sit here in prayer, if there's any of you, you say, I've lost my joy. I'm a Christian. 
but I have undervalued it, devalued it, I've de-emphasized it, I've lost track of it entirely. As you sit here right now, you say, that's me. I just want to pray for you right now. I'm not going to have you raise your hand because I know you're here. But I don't want to leave before you get a chance to pray and for me to pray for you for that baptism of the Holy Spirit and filling of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that wherever we pray, that wherever joy has been lost in our lives, where it's been tamped down, where the light has been dimmed, that you would freshly fill us right now with the fullness of your Holy Spirit, Lord, God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit, and restore joy to our lives, Lord. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will come out of our innermost being as a torrent of living water and that we will not be conformed by the spiritual atmosphere of the world that is around us, of, of our family, of our workplace, of our school, but that you would give us this dimension and this ability to live, Lord, openly everywhere you take us in this world. And we ask that of you in Jesus' name. And I also want to just pray for any of us that are here today where you've lost your joy because of sin, playing with sin, dabbling with sin. And you realize today you want to turn from that. And you want to have the relationship with God that you once had, including the joy that once poured from your life that once guarded your heart and your mind, that made you human in a beautiful way, that made you a wonderful person to be around at home and beyond. And I'm going to give you a moment to just say, Lord, I turn from my sin today and I turn to you I ask for your forgiveness. I've paid a terrible price for my choices. But I thank you that you're a forgiving God. And I ask you to forgive me, Lord. And I choose now to repent of my sin and to obey you and to walk with you. And I ask you to freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit and with the beauty and the majesty of this joy that's been spoken of this morning. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.